WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. As many scientists know, whenever you're doing a search, a literature search to be particular, there are so many papers out there. It is really difficult to organize it all, to go through it, and then to figure out what is happening. Today, we're talking to Serena Lotrick about her research on plant science, where she's navigating the research papers that are out there. I'll let her tell us more about it, though. Thanks for joining us today, Serena. May you please tell us about yourself and your research? Yeah, so my name's Serena. I'm a third-year graduate student. I'm a dual-degree student in plant biology and computational mathematics, science, and engineering. That's just a really fancy way to say that I work on a computer to represent information about plants um, and plant biology. And I've been working on this project for about two years now, um, and it's become the, the center focus of my research and it was really inspired by this, what Chelsea just mentioned about there being so many papers, right? Like I, as a, an undergraduate in my honors thesis, I used to do wet lab biology, but like I did biochemistry research and I finished up my whole honors thesis. And then I found a paper that was completely changed what the trajectory of my research should have been. And so the overall goal of the project is to start building tools that will help scientists manage that flow of literature in such a way that is helpful to them in generating new hypotheses and doing new experiments. It's interesting to hear about how your trajectory has changed from doing the wet lab science to going into the literature management sector. What are some common organizational tools that scientists use to manage the literature that they're using whenever they're doing a search to support their own research? Yeah, so there are a couple of really popular tools out there I myself use. One of them, there's a tool called Zotero, which I really like because it's open source. So open source software means that the code is readily available and it's free to use. And I'm a big proponent of that in general. So I tend to use Zotero. There's other services that have paid features to them. But more or less what you're looking at is an interface where you can save all of the papers that you've read or that you might want to reference later. And then it will generate citations for you. So you all remember, you know, in middle and high school, having to make those bibliographies at the end of your essays, right? I don't know about the rest of you, but I used to use easybib.com where I would go and write, drop a website link in there and it would generate a bibliography for me. This is basically just a much more robust and streamlined way to do that. So you have everything saved in there. There's not like a bunch of spammy ads like there are on EasyBib. <laughs> um, and you can go back and edit all of your citations and change what papers are in your bibliographies and stuff. And, and most of the time, those papers are coming from an academic search engine. So like a Google Scholar, there's another one called Semantic Scholar, where it's just a big repository of all the papers that anybody's ever written, basically. And you can go search and find some stuff that's relevant for you. And when you read the paper and you're like, Great, I like this one. You go drop it in your, they're called reference managers or citation managers, these tools. So you go drop it in your Zotero, your, your citation manager, and then you can reference it and use it later. Yeah, I personally have used so many different reference managers. So I've gone through EndNote, I've gone through Mendeley, Zotero, ReadCube Papers, ResearchRabbit. I've tried a lot of them. In one of my previous research projects, I was actually working on networking a code where I would have different nodes that would affect certain things. So a simple example was that a gene would upregulate or downregulate something. So it would control whether something was being expressed or not. And we've had many episodes on genes. 
Can you explain your particular model and how that's working in relation to these papers? Yeah, so the general idea um, is to create something that we call a knowledge graph. And actually, everybody interfaces with knowledge graphs every day, even though we don't necessarily know it. Google the search engine. When you Google something, you know how it pops up that nice little info box on the side with maybe information from Wikipedia or information from other sources. That is actually generated by a knowledge graph. And all a knowledge graph is, is a series of nodes connected by edges where the nodes are objects. So people, places, things. In our case, in biology, it's genes and proteins and animals and plants. And then the edges are just the relationships between them. So like you just said, as an example, one gene upregulates or downregulates another. That would be an example of two nodes connected by an edge. So gene one upregulates gene two, for example. And a knowledge graph is just a big collection of all that information that demonstrates how it's all connected to one another. And that is equally as overwhelming as the search results on Google Scholar, in fact. So that's not the final form of what this project is seeking to do, but that is the structure, the model that we're working with underneath. I always appreciate that Google has that little box on the side. Sometimes it has the answer that I'm looking for right away. And it's interesting to hear that it comes from a knowledge graph. Visually speaking, however, what does a knowledge graph look like? I'm so used to two-dimensional plots where it shows something on the y-axis as a function of x. But what does it look like in your case? Yeah, so if you were to visualize one of these, you'd typically be taking a subset of all the information because it's impossible to look at it all at once. But you would see circles or ovals representing the nodes with the the name of the entities in there, so the real-world objects. You would have maybe a circle that says gene one or a circle that says gene two. And those would be connected by lines that have words on them, and those words are the relations. That would be an overarching way that you could visualize this graph. Knowledge graph is a pretty broad term for me because I'm just imagining a bunch of knowledge in one area. I've had something which people call a brain dump. So it's just like a bunch of notes or a bunch of quotes that I put into a document and it's super messy. How do you sift through all of this at once and how do you represent what you have on that knowledge graph? So going through the knowledge graph is actually the most difficult part of using this technique because in the grand scheme of things, what we're trying to do is reduce the load that researchers bear of literature searching. And what we want is something that is easier and more approachable than, you know, you go to Google Scholar, which is just Google for scientific papers, and, you know, you put in a couple of keywords and you get a million results. We're looking for something that is going to be more helpful in synthesizing all of that information together so that the human brain can understand it in a reasonable way. And and so that is the most challenging part of this task. The knowledge graph itself as a whole is not actually more helpful in understanding and consuming all of the information that we know in a field because it is still too big. And so the goal with my particular project is to predict new connections in the graph, which represent biological information that we haven't yet proven experimentally. And then just giving those hypotheses to the user saying, okay, this is a connection that might be true in real life. Maybe these two genes interact with one another, but we don't actually know that from the present literature. So now the researcher can say, okay, cool. Like, let me read those couple of papers where that information came from that I might not have seen otherwise. And then now I'm going to go do an experiment based on that hypothesis. So that's the goal of this specific project and how I'm hoping to use these knowledge graphs in the, in the long run. 
It sounds like these knowledge graphs do the work for the scientists themselves, actually, in a certain sense. <laughs> Related to the knowledge graph that you're working on, how has it been used to inform your research? I started this project full of high hopes that I would never have to read a scientific paper again. I would never have to do this laborious process of, you know, searching through Google Scholar and picking out my favorite articles, semantic scholar, whatever. Unfortunately, my personal reality as the researcher on this project is that the tool isn't developed yet. And so I haven't gotten to use it at all. I've been using Google, I've been using semantic scholars, I've been using the products of other people's work in the search query area, but I, I have not been able to use my own tool. And, and part of that is that right, I just started the project, but also a big part of that is that this field, so the field of automating reading natural language text, so natural languages like human languages, the field is very difficult. It's a very challenging task to get, you know, a logical machine to understand the nuances of human language. We have so many ways to express the same ideas. There's so much flexibility inherent in our grammar and vocabulary that it's really, really difficult to convey the same skill set onto a computer that we have when we read. And so my tool is now very nascent. It's very small. Its abilities are limited. And so I haven't personally been able to actually use it for anything yet. Mathematical models are great and all. I use them all the time. However, we need to make sure that they work in real life. Are you confirming this in your lab or maybe are you collaborating with other labs or do you have a unique way of proving that your model is working? In the short term, what I'm hoping to do once I finish building the models is to build a knowledge graph with a set of literature, but leave out a chunk of papers on a certain topic. So now we build this graph that knows about some of the science that we've done as a society, but not all of it in this area. So the specific example that I'm hoping to use is there's this phenomenon in plant biology that people call crosstalk, which is when different hormones, plants have hormones just like humans have hormones, when different hormones communicate with each other to accomplish different tasks in the plant. And that's a very specific topic of research. So I'm hoping to take some hormonal biology research, leave out the papers that are about hormonal crosstalk, build the graph just like I would normally, and then when we predict hypotheses on the graph, find hypotheses that are about crosstalk because that information was not used to generate the graph. And so we can validate it with the stuff that we left out. The model, in the model's version of our world, it doesn't know that crosstalk exists, but there are papers on crosstalk that we as humans in the real world know about. And we can use that to validate in a computational setting, validate the predictions that happen on the graph. I also would love to see in the longer term, collaborations with people who do lab work, who do wet lab research, to see, first of all, how they use the tool, how they interact with the tool, whether or not there are certain improvements they would like to see on it, because the tool only is valuable if people are actually going to use it. And so doing some user study of, would you actually use this in your real research? And then if they say yes, if we develop the tool to a point where people are willing to use it and implement it, then saying, okay, now you as a wet lab biologist, can you validate this novel hypothesis that came out of this graph that had all of the papers in this field in it? That is my dream to be able to, to see that. I personally am not a wet lab biologist anymore, but I would love to see. I could see how this kind of modeling would be really useful for medical breakthroughs in the healthcare industry to help address and find some new ways to treat new ailments that we're constantly being exposed to. This got me thinking a little bit about the time scale that it takes to create some of these models. 
how long does it take to create a knowledge map, and which type of computer are you using, a classical computer or a quantum computer? The time that it takes to build the graph is substantially less than the time it takes to train the models that build the graph. So there's, there's a very subtle differentiation there. But in general, in the field of artificial intelligence, what we do is we have some model or set of models. We train them on some data. So we say, here's the answers, right? Here's the real world data and here are the answers that go along with it. Let's learn how to, you teach the model to learn how to predict the answers, to know the answers. And so that is a very time and computationally intensive process. But once you have a trained model, you can then use it, you know, wherever you want, whenever you want. And it is much, much, much less computationally and time intensive than training. And so right now, what I'm working on is taking pre-trained models from other areas. So you mentioned the biomedical sciences earlier, right? That is a big part of where the inspiration for this project comes from because people in the biomedical sciences have been working on this problem for a long time. And so there are models out there that are pre-trained on biomedical information about research on mice or blood cells or very specific biomedical topics. And so we aren't necessarily going to see good performance from those models in the plant sciences, but it's a good place to start because it is not computationally intensive to use them. So I'm currently working on just checking how well do all these different models from these different domains perform. And that means that it only takes a couple of minutes to build a a small to medium-sized graph. I've been working with a set of 8,000 documents. I can give it 8,000 abstracts, and then three minutes later, I have a graph. Five minutes later, whatever it is. But soon, on the order of my, my dissertation, I will want to be training new models specifically to plant science because those don't exist yet. And so once I'm done doing this benchmarking phase where we see how well all these models perform, then I get to add new plant science data to them, and that will be a little bit more intensive. And I am working just on classical computers using GPUs. A lot of these models run on GPUs, which are just really fast processors for originally intended for stuff like video games, video rendering, but can also be used for these kind of heavy lifting artificial intelligence. I think this will be really great for your field whenever the project is finished. However, whenever you graduate, what will happen to this knowledge graph afterwards? For example, will it be maybe on a website or on an app or maybe even open source so that people in your field can access it? My dream, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a big staunch supporter of open source software. My dream is to build a set of programs or a a software tool that is freely available on the internet that anyone can use to generate new graphs for their specific domain. What I want to build is a tool that is adaptable because I'm working right now in the hormone biology area, but there are so many research fields out there that would benefit from a tool like this. And so I think that by the time that I graduate, it'll still be in its first stages of life tool. And so I'm hoping that I can pass on the project to another student who will then keep maintaining it as an open source project. That's one of the difficult things about developing software in graduate school is that you do, you move on, you get another job and you might not necessarily have the time to maintain the software. And so I'm really hoping to pull another person in as I leave, right, to keep working on this and developing it because I think that it has a lot of potential and there's a lot of research to be done with it. And it would be a great project to keep doing for somebody else's dissertation. And I just love the idea of having it be freely available in the universe for anybody, even people who aren't software engineers. 
But I also agree that there could be a lot of benefit from having this kind of work openly shared on the internet so that way others could create knowledge maps of their own to help improve the efficiency of research. We talked a little bit about this just now, but I wanted to get a little more of an idea of what your plan is once you've finished your PhD and you're ready to move on. Do you have any plans for after you graduate? I am really hoping to stay in agriculture but go work in industry. I'm very excited about supporting experimental scientists as a computational biologist. I feel like there is a a big call for data tools that support this crazy amount of experimental data that we generate now in the biological sciences. And I am very, very excited about agriculture as a sector because I care a lot about climate change and and I want to feel like my life's work is making a difference towards being more sustainable. So I'm hoping to go work in maybe a small company, a large company, I'm not really sure where, but um, in a role where an experimental biologist can say to me, hey, I need this software tool. And the team that I'm on is like, okay, great, give us a couple of weeks and we'll figure it out or whatever. And I, I love machine learning and artificial intelligence. So I'd love to be developing like artificial intelligence driven solutions to data problems in agriculture. Well, that sounds great, Serena. I really hope that this project will be able to be open source and that you're successful with your future. Thanks so much for joining us on the Sci-Files. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files. And remember, the truth is in the science.